Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, Jason Wilson, who covers the far right for The Guardian. And at the bottom of the hour, Todd Cretion will reflect on the history of the International Socialist Organization, which dissolved itself last week at the age of 42. First, the far right. Jason Wilson has been in this show several times to discuss that tendency, which he covers for The Guardian. He had a piece in that outlet the other day on an intelligence report assembled by a consortium of cops on the risks of political violence. Done just before the Charlottesville riot in 2017, law enforcement took a both-sides-now attitude, finding the risks equally attributable to anti-fascists in ski masks and neo-Nazis bearing assault rifles. Also, since Jason is based in Portland, he gives an update on the far right in that hotbed of the far right. And since he's Australian, he gives us some background on the Christchurch mass murderer who came from that country. Jason Wilson. Hi, Jason. It's been, uh, Skype tells me it's been nine months since we talked about our, our friends, the white supremacists and neo-Nazis, so uh, time for an update. No, uh, it's been too long. <laughs> yeah, you had a piece in The Guardian the other day about an intelligence report uh, prepared for law enforcement uh, before that uh, Charlottesville riot, and uh, they were looking at the wrong targets, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the, the document I was working off um, was produced by a centre called uh, ROKIC, which is one of, uh, one of a number of risks centres, regional intelligence sharing system centres around the country. And it basically serves the southern states. What was this, a consortium of police agencies? Or? Yeah, well, the risk centres started in 97, but from about 2003, they, they became um, incorporated into the architecture of the, the security state in, in, in the wake of, you know, the war on terror security state. Um, so really, they're just... They're the backbone now of what's called the National Criminal Intelligence Sharing Plan. So they, they basically link up databases between federal, uh, state, local, regional, tribal police agencies. And they also produce these kind of intelligence reports from time to time. Now, this one was produced, the one I reported on was produced in, in May uh, 2017. And it's almost cartoonishly bad Clearly, what had happened was, you can read it yourself, I've linked to it in the story, but clearly what they were responding to was the very first, I suppose, significant outbreaks of street violence, you know, in the wake of the election of Trump. So, you know, you had those events in D.C. on the inauguration day and then and then in Berkeley, California in, in February of that year. And already in, in, in Portland, things were starting to brew then as well. But But mostly they're responding to stuff in Berkeley, uh, where uh, anti-fascists had, had counter-protested against, um, you know, an event uh, featuring Milo Yiannopoulos, and, and there had been significant street violence there, and far-right guys had come kind of prepared for that violence. So they're responding to that, but um, what's clear from the report is that, that um, they know a lot more about the left than they do about the far-right. And they try and kind of shoehorn what little they do know into this sort of both sides framework. What they say about the far right is, is way off base. And a lot of it seems to be just the product of a, a little bit of Googling, basically. Now, this is this is funny because, you know, uh, the, these anti-fa, which they're, they're, they're so obsessed about, you know, at, at worst, they'll bop somebody over the head at a, at a, at a, at a street confrontation. Uh, the far right uh, has been like machine gunning scores of people. Um, in multiple incidents. Um, so <laughs> how do we explain this uh, asymmetry of attention? Yeah, it's it's complicated. There are people on the left who, who will say that simply that the, the police just kind of sympathise with the far right and all of the police are on the far right, you know, in, in terms of their own political beliefs. I mean, I think that's possibly true to, to some extent. Their, their passive sympathies are, are definitely on the right and that police officers and senior police officers in particular tend to be, a, a, you know, a strata of pretty conservative right and right-wing opinion. But um, also I think that historically, structurally, the FBI in particular was set up as a kind of political police force and, and there's a long kind of history and a lot of momentum behind them considering the, the left to be a much greater threat to the United States than the far right. It, it does bear saying, though, I talked to Mike German, who um, is a former FBI agent. I quote him in the story. He actually infiltrated far-right groups in the 1990s, both in the militia movement and on the sort of uh, the racist, neo-Nazi far-right. You know, and he says back then, actually, they were starting to come to grips with this and that there was a, a level of institutional knowledge and a consciousness that these groups were actually kind of a, a significant domestic terror threat, particularly in the wake of Timothy McVeigh's bombing in Oklahoma City, 
now though he says a lot of that uh, a lot of that institutional knowledge has has disappeared and and you know the war on terror in fact had a big effect there uh, when all of their resources were were devoted basically to surveilling uh, Muslims uh, in in America so um you know they they've kind of lost the thread so to speak with with the far right and they don't kind of understand it anymore and that's that's really evident in this report which yeah and I think I derailed you from talking about the report so it's a both sides uh, a responsible kind of thing right yeah above all I think that this report is very sloppy and lazy and and seems to be you know as I said someone's been tasked with googling up a little bit of information there's no they, they actually list their sources and there are no books or anything like that, no foreign language sources. Um, they're all short form sources from the internet and a lot of them are from pretty dubious places like Laura Ingram's um, kind of conservative lifestyle magazine, Life Z, it's called. You know, it's, it, yeah, it's not very well put together, um, but what information they do kind of glean, they, they shoehorn into this kind of, well, it's both sides they even go so far as to say that both sides are, are, are kind of anarchist um, in, in, their, in their sympathies, which makes no sense in relation to the far right at all, who, who if anything, are often openly currying favour with and expressing sympathy with, with the state and police. So, you know, it's hard to tell whether it's been produced in order to cater to the sensibilities of, of the people who it's going out to, like local police departments who, who, who might be kind of con- consumers of conservative media themselves and who have a kind of standing hostility to the left and who might want to want to see it in these terms, that it is a both sides kind of thing. It's hard to tell, but, I mean, it's, it's alarming that, you know, this is in the months leading up to Charlottesville and there's no specific or detailed information about the far-right groups who are already out there, already organising, already organising street protests, which are designed to provoke counter-protesters and, and designed in order to, to lead to these kind of violent incidents. Um, there's no detailed information about any of these groups. There's no examination of the long-standing kind of um, neo-Confederate and um, neo-Nazi groups that are out there or the, or the groups that were already emerging then, like the Proud Boys, who um, have been heavily involved in all kinds of street violence in the United States in the last couple of years. They just don't kind of know what's going on on the far right at all. To the extent they know what's going on on the left, again, it seems to be the product of Googling. Like, they've got a whole bunch of insignia of Antifa groups, but they don't really seem to understand why those people are acting as they are or, or, or anything like that. They also seriously mischaracterise an incident that happened in Sacramento in 2017, which uh, involved, by any means necessary, counter-protesting, you know, an event that was organised in part by the Golden State skinheads, which resulted in a whole bunch of people ending up in hospital with stab wounds. And the best we can tell, it appears that those stab wounds were inflicted by one of the far-right people. But the report characterises that almost as... You know, it doesn't attribute blame for that, and it basically implies that maybe, maybe by any means necessary, we're, we're responsible for those injuries and that violence. So, you just kind of keep getting that throughout—a real distortion of the dynamics of these events. No evidence that they really understand who the far right is and what their aims are and what they're doing, and a really superficial, at best, understanding of the left groups uh, as well, who most often are counter-protesting neo-fascist organising. And the, the, we know there's a long history of the cops, of various levels of cop, uh, infiltrating left-wing organizations, not merely for intelligence, but to disrupt them. I mean, COINTELPRO, but before that and after that, ever since. Do we have any evidence of whether they're doing anything similar with uh, right-wing organizations, either investigative or disruptive? Well, there's no direct evidence. I'd be surprised if there weren't a whole bunch of feds and cops and informants in all kinds of far-right groups at the moment. I mean, we saw after the Malheur occupation that there were nine federal informants <laughs> among the small number of people who were kind of camped up there the whole time. So I'm sure that there is infiltration. It's, it's difficult to tell, and I hope to, I hope to keep looking into this issue and, and, and find out more of that stuff. But, but all of the evidence suggests, again... And, you know, there's been previous reporting on these kinds of documents being produced by fusion centres. I'd encourage your listeners to um, read a story that Will Parrish wrote in Shadowproof. Uh, let's see, um, I, you know, I can pass on the link. It was in March 2018. Uh, he found a whole bunch of these documents produced by fusion centres, which are a slightly different thing 
you know, which, which really reflected the same kind of basic attitude to this situation, which is like in the report I examined, often they just took the story that the far right tell about what they're doing at face value, like that they're standing up for free speech, you know, for the First Amendment, and they're being attacked by any fascists. And mostly the events on the ground completely contradict those assessments. It's a persistent sort of attitude. So whether or not they're infiltrating or investigating far right groups, um, it seems really hard for police uh, or law enforcement agencies at all levels to kind of shake this basic antipathy to the left, even to the extent of distorting what's actually happening. Well, you've, you've seen them in, in Portland and pretty much taking the side of the, for the far right, right, the cops? Well, you know, we've, we've had that story in the last few months here, uh, which was actually broken by the local alt weekly, the Willamette Week, you know, about a whole bunch of texts between um, the head of the riot squad, basically, here in, in Portland, and Joey Gibson, who's the leader of the far-right Patriot Prayer Movement. Um, and, you know, those texts were very friendly in tone throughout. But, but not only that, you know, um, they seemed to indicate, you know, tactical advice. This guy, Jeff Neer, who was the head of the riot squad, was telling Joey Gibson in the moment where anti-fascists were coming up on his flank or, you know, coming to surround him. He was actually offering that kind of advice in the moment. Um, there was also what seemed to be a level of kind of operational coordination. So, you know, at one point in the text, Nia actually asks Joey Gibson if it's okay if he tells uh, the police department in Vancouver, Washington, just over the river, about Joey's plans to kind of have this bait and switch rally, which wound up back in Vancouver. You know, and he's saying to Joey, I don't want to blow your secret by, t- by telling Vancouver police about this. They may, it may leak from them. So, you know, the, the friendly tone has been explained away as, you know, this is what contemporary crowd management is like. This is what we've got to do. These relationships in our, allow us to manage potentially dangerous situations. Um, the investigation's ongoing. For mine, the big questions are whether that, you know, encompasses tactical and operational coordination on that level. I, 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 we really don't have an explanation for that yet. I'm speaking with the journalist Jason Wilson, who covers the far right for The Guardian. And speaking of Portland, um, what are those guys up to these days? There have been some splits emerging in the coalition of groups that had been coming into Portland last summer uh, to have protests. The Proud Boys in this part of the country appear to have fallen out with Joey Gibson. Just a a month or so back, they had um, planned to have a rally uh, in Vancouver, Washington, and, and they wound up having separate rallies, you know, a few blocks apart because, you know, they're... They're in a snit. But Joey Gibson has turned his energies to another project, which is trying to resist uh, a gun control package that was passed as a ballot measure in in the state of Washington. So he's going around to uh, rural counties uh, and encouraging those counties to set themselves up as Second Amendment sanctuary counties, Yeah, uh, which wherein those laws, those new laws will not be enforced. Um, The laws prevent under 21s from buying assault rifles. They mandate safe storage for guns, um, you know, and a, a few other little things um, around the edges there, but they're the main provisions. And, and Joey's trying to encourage counties and sheriffs to sort of come out and say publicly that they'll, they'll be not enforcing those laws. Now, it's not all down to Joey, but the majority of Washington sheriffs, 21 out of 39, have publicly said that they won't enforce those laws, at least until a lawsuit brought by the NRA is settled. So he's he's kind of turned his attention to that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, marching season isn't here yet. The, the, the warm weather's just around the corner. People have kind of written him off before. And then last summer we saw the, the worst street violence we've seen in Portland in the Trump era. So I'd be hesitant to say that we won't see those kind of things happening again. You know, the election is coming up. Um, election talk is in the air. I imagine it's going to be a, at least as contentious as, as an election as 2016 was. We now have Trump, too, um, encouraging people. As you know, my, my friends, the Hells Angels and the cops, man, you know, they're ready to move. People, you know, like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer hear that sort of thing, and I can't believe it discourages them from acting. No. And, and I think that rhetorically, Trump's been doing that all along. You know, I recall, you know, him in rallies in 2016, encouraging his supporters or security to eject people or to, to, to punch people who are protesting in his rallies. Um, he's always 
given a, a nod and a wink at the very least, if not outright encouragement to, to, to violence from his supporters. And more than that, I think that um, what you'll hear coming out of the mouth of people like Joey Gibson is is a kind of paranoia that, that, that Trump's managed to maintain even in office, even when those guys, you know, own the whole trophy cabinet. This idea that somehow Trump's presidency is being undermined by the deep state or, you know, by some kind of sinister forces within the government and that somehow the mayor of Portland <laughs> represents that. Um, and, you know, any Democrat in power is implicated in that conspiracy. So, you know, he's really managed to continue to make his supporters feel embattled, to feel like his authority, his, impres- his presidency is in, in mortal danger from minute to minute. And, you know, I think that kind of feeds into a kind of violent response as well. Yeah, I mean, Trump is a moron in many ways, but he's a really skilled demagogue. You can't take that away from him. Yeah, I think that's right. And now going to the other side of the world, uh, your homeland uh, produced uh, the Christchurch shooter. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts about him? Yeah, it's a, it's a very unsurprising but still shocking event, which I think will be all processing for some time. Part of my response, I wrote something for The Guardian, was to say that, you know, we can't understand an Australian guy going to New Zealand to shoot 50 Muslims at worship, apart from the uh, Islamophobia that's kind of ratcheted up in Australian public culture over the last couple of decades. Uh, you know, where where in Australia has been an enthusiastic participant in the war on terror. In Australia, Americans would find it hard to understand how dominant Rupert Murdoch's news corporation is as a media player in Australia. They own roughly 70% of the newspapers, they own the only cable news channel, um, they own the only national newspaper, and they have the biggest selling newspapers in most major metropolitan areas. So their influence on public opinion is kind of much more pronounced even than it is here. You know, Fox here is what it is, but um, when you've got every major newspaper owned by the same company running a similar kind of line, that's that's a really difficult situation to be in. So that's, that's one thing, I think, um, that... We need to put this into in the context of, of this kind of drumbeat of, of Islamophobia um, and xenophobia um, that we've seen in Australia over two decades. The other thing to say is that clearly this guy has been radicalised by online, by the, the, the culture of contemporary internet-mediated fascism. Now, everything he did, um, unfortunately, uh, as a professional necessity, I had to read his manifesto and watch his video now, everything he did was a kind of meme, you know, that could be understood in terms of 8chan or 4chan culture or, or the podcasting culture of, of the contemporary far right. So he's clearly a member in good standing of that, of that subculture. He proves that a single member of that subculture can do a significant amount of damage to a, a defenceless group of people and a defenceless target. And, you know, he spelled out his aims as carrying out a symbolic act that would lead to uh, greater cleavages in society and, you know, a civil war in the United States um, eventually. Um, I won't go into the details there, but these these guys have explicitly political aims. This was a, a political act of terrorism, you know, and while there are breaks on the capacity of people to do that in Australia because of Australia's gun laws and, and New Zealand will be changing its gun laws as well, um, here in the United States, there aren't many impediments to those kinds of acts. And, you know, there will be more guys out there who think that that's the way to go. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be concerned, deeply concerned, that we're going to see more acts of this kind in the future. And, you know, I, I don't think it's possible to really measure the size of this movement, but it is a movement. But it's a movement like nothing we've ever known before, because these are people who don't really, you know, have organizations necessarily, or don't meet in person. But they um, they exist as a movement in in some interconnected virtual sense, uh, and they ins- study each other. They're inspired by each other. They encourage each other. Yeah, I think probably the the closest analogy, you know, you know, or if we've seen anything like this before, it may be the sort of globally networked jihadi network that was sort of most active around the time that, you know, that ISIS was doing well. There was a similar kind of dynamic at work there. But these guys can kind of 
go under the radar more because you know um, they're they're young white men, and and <laughs> their attitudes, their their xenophobia and Islamophobia overlap significantly with the sort of permissible range of political speech in all of the English-speaking democracies I'm familiar with. So that's the problem. Muslims, radicalised Muslims, are, are, are under serious and constant surveillance in English-speaking countries and, and in Western Europe. You know, I, I don't think we can confidently say the same of guys who have been radicalised on the far right. Um, I'm not optimistic that that will change quickly enough um, to prevent more of these events happening that law enforcement will begin to take this kind of threat seriously. But that's part of what needs to happen. But uh, law enforcement is very busy uh, studying the, uh, the dangers of the Antifa people. Exactly. <laughs> and putting, putting out the kind of cartoonishly bad reports that, that you know, I, I wrote about this week. That was Jason Wilson, who covers the far right for The Guardian. You can find the article by Will Parrish on the cop's severity towards the left and indulgence towards the right that Jason mentioned by googling Will Parrish, Parrish has two R's, Fusion Centers, Shadowproof, Shadowproof is one word, Will Parrish, Fusion Centers, Shadowproof. It should show up first. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the second movement of Haydn's Piano Trio No. 44, performed by the Beaux-Arts Quartet. It sounds curiously like Shostakovich. Now for the far right to the far left. At the end of March, the International Socialist Organization voted to dissolve itself. The proximate cause was a rape committed in 2013, which the leadership covered up until about a month ago. That cover-up led many members to feel betrayed by an organization that had taken up a large piece of their lives. But it also led to some serious questions about the whole model of party organization, questions that had been simmering as a Sanders campaign and the growth in the Democratic Socialists of America had given life to socialism in this country in ways in which she hadn't seen since the late 1960s and maybe the 1930s. The ISO was a small organization, maybe around 750 at the end of its life, but it was punched far above its weight. A lot of people on the left didn't like it. It wasn't my style of politics, but I did have a lot of respect for them. What does the end of the ISO mean for politics in the left? What about that entire mode of organization, disciplined, hierarchical, and at least to outsiders, murky and secretive? Here's Todd Cretion, who spent almost 30 years in the ISO to reflect. A little history of the ISO was founded almost 40 years ago, right? Just over 40 years ago. We were, we were founded as the ISO, International Socialist Organization, uh, in 1977. Came out of, um, you know, as these things go, uh, a split with a group called the International Socialists, which was actually started back in Berkeley uh, in KPFA home territory in the, in the 1960s. It was uh, a Trotskyist organization from the first? Yeah, it was. It, it came out of a, a long line of anti-Stalinist organizing. One of the most important people back in the day was a, a person named Hal Draper, who ended up working as a librarian at UC Berkeley for a number of years. Uh, he wrote a number of great books, uh, Karl Marx's Theory of Revolution uh, and, and others. So it saw itself very, very much as the socialism from below anti-Stalinist tradition. When did you join? 
I joined in 1991, um, just uh, after the first Gulf War. I was a student in New York City. I had come back from Nicaragua and had decided that it was very difficult for people in Central America or Mexico to change their countries so long as the United States uh, was the big bully on the block. So came back and was looking for something. I honestly didn't know what it was because growing up as a kid in rural Maine in the 1980s, socialism wasn't really a big choice, a big alternative. So I uh, came across people in different places and and had kind of philosophically been a socialist for for quite a while and ended up in in Nicaragua and El Salvador as a solidarity activist, but really didn't know what to make of it when I came back to the United States and uh, went to school in New York City and ran into socialist organizers during the anti-war movement and joined the ISO in the spring of 1991. And what particular attracted you about the ISO? Well, there there were two things really. I I was never attracted to sort of high Stalinism. I always thought that was uh, you know repugnant, and was looking for what I thought to be the kind of core commitment in Marx and other thinkers' politics about revolution and socialism had to be about bottom up change, about ordinary people changing the world and not being done from the top down. So I, I liked that about the ISO, that political emphasis, but I also thought that they were very talented organizers and did a good job of trying to make the politics relevant to the particular, uh, at that moment, the anti-war movement that we were facing. And so they they were not only politically that I find myself in sympathy with them, but also thought that they were competent uh, and dynamic organizers. What was the internal life like? What Did it become really like a dominant portion of your life, a lot of friendships, uh, a lot of your time organized around ISO activities? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> I, I would describe myself from 1991 until just very recently as, uh, you know, as, uh, as somebody who dedicated uh, an enormous amount of my time and, and energy to the International Socialist Organization and all the activities that went along with that. Um, you know, in the organization for a large part of that, I would say that we were in the 80s and the 90s and the thousands. I mean, people today may not recall, uh, some of your listeners will, but for people under the age of, maybe even under the age of 40, your entire life was structured by socialism is this sort of strange throwback. And so we lived in the ISO and organized in the ISO in anticipation of there being a rebirth of socialist ideas and of class struggle. And when I joined in 1991, you know, honestly, my perspective was, well, it's really bad now, but Stalinism is collapsing. And so it's going to be just a few years before people realize that capitalism is just as bad as Stalinism. And now that Stalinism is gone, there'll be a rebirth of genuine socialist ideas. So we're in a minority now, but, you know, three, four five years from now, things are going to look a lot better. And of course, in 1995, <laughs> you know, it wasn't exactly the rebirth of the socialist movement. And then 10 and 20 and 30 years go by. And so I saw for a very long time, I think we fought the good fight. You know, we did what we could. We, we helped contribute to keeping socialist ideas alive. But we were very, very isolated in terms of our ideas. And that took a toll. But you were um, certainly one of the larger organizations on the socialist left uh, throughout that period, right? Yes, we became, uh, I wouldn't say a big fish in a small pond. I would say a small fish in a pond that was drying up. <laughs> in a puddle. <laughs> we were relevant. And part of that was because of, you know, I think we were pretty talented organizers. Or at least we had talented organizers. But really, the big forces of the global left after 1991 really were in rough shape. And in some sense, that explains our success. Because we saw the collapse of Stalinism, I think now in retrospect, naively, as opening up space for genuine socialism. What really happened was that as Stalinism collapsed, it brought down much of the left with it. And so rather than the collapse of the Soviet Union marking a kind of a simple or immediate rebirth of the left, it really strengthened the forces of neoliberalism and led in places like South Africa to the ANC essentially signing a historic compromise with capitalism. And rather than the death of apartheid being the first stage to a socialist revolution, the death of apartheid was an important battle, but it ended up laying the basis for a neoliberal South Africa. The same thing with the Workers' Party in Brazil. 25 years of struggle brings Lula to power only to see his government become entangled in, in Brazilian capitalism, the collapse of social democracy in Europe, etc. So rather than the 1990s being a rebirth of revolutionary socialism, uh, it was really the decline of the left. 
we, for our little group, saw our opportunities and we made the most of them. And that was useful. Um, and I think it was, it, we made a good contribution, but we were completely unable to turn the tide of global class struggle. It took us a while to, to, to wise up to the fact that the ISO was not so important that it could change the balance of class forces on a global level, um, which sounds silly to say, but you know, when you're a committed organizer and you can see the, the pain and suffering that capitalism causes, there is a truth to the idea that people are going to rise up and fight back at some point. Um, but we pretty systematically miscalculated how long that would take. One of the several postmortems I've read of the ISO in the last few days uh, pointed out that uh, the organization's lifespan was basically the darkest times uh, for the left in you know, modern history. That certainly affected how you operated internally and externally, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a part of our makeup. If you, if you had to go and pick a date on a calendar to found an organization based on uh, the idea of workers' power at the workplace and the capacity of ordinary people to to overturn capitalist relations, you would not go to the United States in 1977 and say, this is exactly the time to start. The first years of the Jimmy Carter administration, the attacks on the auto industry and then Reagan and the attacks on the the unions just escalated. And so we've seen in the entire history of the ISO unionization decline from 22, 24 percent in the mid 70s, you know, down to the single digits uh, until and, and really a linear decline of strike statistics uh, during that entire period, with the exception of the last 12 months now. So it, it that period of defeat and demoralization and retreat was the context in which the ISO did what it did. And, um, and I think that that for the many things that I'm proud of, I think that we underestimated how much that context limited our horizons and really defined what we thought of as our role. I always wonder this about Leninist or quasi-Leninist organizations operating in the United States today or in recent decades. What precisely was your theory of how the revolution was going to happen? And what was the ISO's contribution to that going to be? I mean, how do you imagine events unfolding towards socialism? We were never, to use an old phrase that some people might recognize, never know, never so naive as to believe that the ISO was the quote-unquote revolutionary party or anything like that. You know, a group of hundreds of people cannot command the allegiance of tens of millions of workers. Uh, rather, what we, we saw ourselves doing is trying to popularize the ideas of socialism to train a generation of socialist organizers and essentially to, to make the best of a bad period of defeat by fighting against the death penalty and police brutality and strike solidarity and uh, defending abortion clinics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We did all of that activity at the same time as we educated people and supported institutions like Haymarket Books in anticipation that the only way there would be a rebirth of a real socialist movement in the United States would be if tens of thousands of people began to spontaneously adopt the ideas of socialism. And if hundreds of thousands of people overcame the pessimism and the repression at their workplaces and began to go on strike again. And that, that combined with social movements would lay the basis for the potential for a real socialist movement. We saw ourselves as being a left wing of that, but a very small yeast that could leaven the dough, uh, but we were in no way, shape, or form going to be capable of doing that for ourselves. I think it's pretty plain that the ISO as an organization and its leadership and its membership, for most of our time as organizers, never fell for the idea that we were the revolutionary party and everybody else uh, was wrong and we were just waiting for people to come to us. But the complexity of how you could merge a revolutionary organization, and there's many other organizations out there, many other radical organizations, how all those organizations could merge themselves with a whole new mass movement was a, que a question that we pondered, but we really didn't have the chance to answer until I'd say the last year or two. As I recall from the days when I used to read Workers' Vanguard uh, regularly, um, the Spartacists seemed to spend half their time attacking the ISO. I mean, they, they, the intra-Trotskyist rivalry seemed more important than fighting capitalism to them, at least. Yeah, that was true with them. And, you know, they were, um, I would say they were, uh, well, they are what they are for people who know they are what they are. And people who don't, I will leave it to the Internet to find out. <laughs> There was a sense in the ISO that the rest, of, and this was, I think, both a strength and a weakness. There was a sense in the ISO that the, the rest of the left was declining. It was one way or the other tied to Stalinism, that it was in crisis. And so we set ourselves 
to be, especially for the 90s, pretty independent and even at times hostile, <laughs> I would say too much to many people on the left with the idea that we needed to get a new generation of people to look at ideas of socialism from below. And that the left that was going into decline and the Spartacists were exemplars of that, or I don't know if they were ever in incline, but, but the idea that we could kind of go our own way in the 1990s both led to the ISO's growth, but I also think that in the end it set up habits that we had difficulty, although I think we did, to a degree overcome. And so there was a dynamic, a dialectic, if you will, between trying to grow and trying to emphasize democracy from below, socialism from below, trying not to get tied to the old left, most of which was declining and going into the Democratic Party and abandoning the ideas of socialism. And in that little narrow space, the ISO tried to operate to the best of our ability. I'm speaking with Todd Cretion, who spent almost 30 years in the International Socialist Organization, which dissolved itself last week after 42 years. Now, several times you said socialism from below, and I know that's a, that's a cornerstone of, of ISO's thinking. How did this party, which even if it was not a vanguard party in you know, the classic sense, it was populated by people with a far more sophisticated analysis of political economy than uh, a lot of other organizations. You know, it was, had a very um, developed understanding of how the world what worked and how it should look. What would the relation of that kind of organization be to that movement from below? I mean, was it meant to catalyze, to lead, uh, to encourage, prod from behind? I mean, what was the relation? It's a very good question. And for much of the time of the ISO, we were forced to ponder that question in the abstract. What would be the relationship of revolutionary socialists to a future big movement of socialism or class struggle? And so for much of our time, that was a pretty abstract question. We learned a lot from our comrades in Greece. Um, there was an organization or is an organization called the International Workers Left, and they participated in the creation of Syriza, uh, the government with Alexis Tsipras, which eventually came to power. And they tried to function as its extreme left wing. Uh, and when and, and so they were involved in huge strikes and huge battles against austerity. But in the end, that the social democratic tendencies of Syriza effectively overcame the left wing class struggle impulses and Cipra signed the, the memorandum, led to a process of decomposition and deflation of the, of the Greek class struggle, at least for the time being. So we looked at that and we said, OK, well, even though they were defeated, there is an instance of how revolutionary socialists could operate in a bigger venue and a bigger party and be, be loyal parts of it, even if they remained critical. And I think that the same, we, we learned a lot from our, from, uh, from our co-thinkers in Spain and the anti-capitalistas who are working inside Podemos, uh, from organizations like Resistencia in Brazil that work within PESOL. So there were instances around the world where you could say revolutionary socialists, uh, in organizations of hundreds of people could work inside and with as loyal components of bigger, broader forces, even if they maintain their independence and their own uh, their own political point of view. So we could see those internationally, uh, but it was very hard to imagine how anything like that could operate in the United States until the last few years. And so with the rise of the teacher strikes and the rise of the Democratic Socialists of America, AOC, Tlaib, Bernie, et cetera, for the first time in my life from after doing this for almost 30 years, there was what we finally wanted to see, which was the spontaneous adoption of socialist ideas by tens of thousands of people and a return to class struggle. And of course, there were precedents to that. So the Black Lives Matter, the immigrants' rights struggle, uh, the Me Too movement, there were a whole series of things that led up to the current level of consciousness. But I think everybody who's listening to this program would agree that the that the phenomenon of the new socialist movement, it was, uh, if it was unexpected, uh, everybody is, is happy to see it. And so that posed a question about, well, how will we can relate to that? Now, what brought the final crisis to the ISO was, of course, the rape scandal and the cover up. But it's, I, I've read a lot of reflections on what that whole process or that whole uh, history of the cover-up led to reflections on the organizational form uh, and the kinds of distortions uh, that this imposed on people's you know, personalities and relationships. Could you talk some about what the, what these um, reflections have led you to think? I'll just give you my opinion, and other people will have a different opinion. But my opinion is that over the course of forty years, any organization that is that is as intense as ours was uh, is going to make a bunch of mistakes, and in the absence of a bigger, broader growing socialist movement, those mistakes become concentrated and perpetuated uh, and they create bad habits. People get old, they get frustrated, uh, they lash out at each other. So we had, we had all of that like any organization has. 
and the particular intensity and the focus on building the ISO, never to the exclusion of building movements, but I would say an overemphasis on the attempt to accumulate members and then argue to those members to be extremely active. Those dynamics set in motion a set of habits that both led to an inability, and I include myself in this, or at least a difficulty to imagine how could we do anything differently. And so that leads to a situation where you think we have to we have to survive this period, our time in the wilderness, in anticipation of this coming social future. Uh, and so what becomes the priority is how do we keep the organization together? And once you begin to think like that, it begins to set up situations in which, against your better judgment, you begin to do things which are detrimental to your cause. So one of those things was that uh, for a very long time, although we spent an inordinate amount of time building and organizing and participating in anti-racist campaigns, that internally, many of our, and and ISO was a predominantly, overwhelmingly white organization when I joined 25, 30 years ago, it's much more multiracial now. However, the price we paid for that kind of voluntarist, always doing the next thing and everybody's going to do the same thing to the best of our ability because that's what democratic centralism is, the price of that was a real underestimation of how difficult it was for comrades of color to operate in that context and even at times a dismissal of their concerns. And then literally, uh, even though this is, uh, I, I mean, I look back on it now and, and I look back on it on disbelief. The truth is, is that, and I include myself in it, that the leadership guy so discouraged caucuses based on race and gender. The idea was that we want everybody to participate equally. Everything we know about society is that that's not how things really work. And so the hostility of the ISO's leadership to caucuses based on gender or race or immigrant status or language uh, was was really a, a fault that I think needs explaining. I think we need to examine it. I think we need to take it very seriously. And so that was a very that was a very detrimental thing that undercut our ability to, to, to function effectively as an anti-racist organization. So that's that's one of those habits. And then you mentioned the, the, the 2013, I don't know what else to call it other than a, a mishandling or, and then a cover-up of what are very uh, troubling and very legitimate complaint against a, a young organizer uh, for a, a charge of rape or at least sexual assault against, uh, against a, a young woman. Um, and, and a <laughs> the the thing about it is is that that had just happened in the SWP, although the person in Britain who was accused of that was a leading national organizer. So that literally months after that happened, we at our national convention convention elected an independent disciplinary body to to be prepared to deal with any charges like this. That independent body received this charge, investigated it, and came to a conclusion that they believed that there was something that happened and that disciplinary action was was needed. And the steering committee of the time back in 2013 effectively intervened to derail that decision. And I, for the life of me, cannot understand why uh, that was done. Uh, never mind the question of sexual assault. Never mind the question of how to take something like that seriously and the duty of socialists to take sexual assault seriously and to, to discipline anybody who commits it. But but even putting that on one side, the other side is why on earth would you do this in the situation where the SWP has just faced this crisis? Why not? Uh, why not take the issue seriously? So that happened in 2013. There were some people who knew about that, but that was only known uh, broadly in the ISO uh, about three weeks ago. And that that, in a sense, was really combined with the frustrations around the internal lack of democracy, the treatment of uh, the aspects of treatment of, of comrades of color. Uh, and then this this cover up really led to a situation in which people were either leaving the ISO or or re- really trying to figure out what do we do and how can we move forward? So. After all this, what about this organizational form? Is this obsolete? Um, is there anything to be um, um, salvaged from this model of party organization? Well, it's a big question. I think that my point of view is that if if the 2013 scandal hadn't been uncovered, then I think that other frustrations, other things would have come to the surface that would have made it difficult to move forward. I do think, though, that the 2013 cover-up was particularly damaging and and for the life of me, 
there is a way in which I can understand it, but there's another way in which I just think it's it's just uh, it's it's just a completely irresponsible thing that that was done, and um, and it really did a lot of damage, uh, and it will continue to do damage. So I hope that other people and other organizations in the future can learn from it. So if you're faced with questions of sexual assault, take them seriously. Do not sweep them sweep them under the rug. Uh, you have to take complaints from survivors uh, with an incredible amount of, of seriousness and treat them accordingly. And, and if nothing else, I hope that other people learn that from our experience. But in terms of the, the general thing, I think that even if that had not come to the surface, we would have faced an incredibly challenging transition period to go from an organization that was trained and built in a period of downturn and defeat to an organization that can play a useful role in this new burgeoning socialist movement. My personal point of view is that I think we could have done that, basically loosening up a tremendous degree and operating much more as a current than as a dependent organization and and finding a way to merge ourselves with the new socialist movement. But there would have been big challenges in that. The positive thing that I see coming out of all this um, is that in some sense, the dissolution of the ISO, rather than trying to uh, what I said to my mother the other day was sometimes it's it's not worth putting good money into an old car uh, and it's time to get a new car. And I think that there's a degree of truth to that, which is that we have hundreds and hundreds of people that despite all the things we did wrong and despite the real uh, heartache and sorrow and damage that, that some of our internal, internal processes caused, the reality is that we have hundreds and hundreds of people who are excellent trade union organizers, civil rights organizers, feminists, they are good educators. They know how to teach people the basics of socialism um, and that we have hundreds of these people and that what we have to figure out how to do now, not just by ourselves and not create an ISO 2.0. I don't think anybody's interested in doing that, but to figure out how do we have a discussion with bigger sections of the left about what we what should we do? So we're very open to advice, to counsel, to ideas. Uh, to collaboration. And I certainly have no intention anytime soon, like in the coming months, of just starting a new organization or joining another organization. I think it's really a time for reflection. It's really a time for discussion, a time for learning and collaboration. But I have a huge amount of confidence in many, many of our members are going to find a way to make a contribution, not in opposition to the new socialist movement, but as a component of it. Um, and, And how that exactly operates into the future, I'm not sure. I will say that I am Happy as a clam that finally, after decades of the working class being attacked and destroyed in this country, uh, the teachers have have led the way and shown that it is possible to stand up against liberalism. Uh, and that despite that we are here in the land of McCarthy, a whole generation of people has spontaneously opted uh, adopted ideas of socialism. Uh, and I think that that is a tremendously important and hopeful sign for the future. We have a big project to figure out how can we contribute, how can we learn from other people, uh, and what's the next steps to help advance the cause of socialism and and workers' democracy in the United States. Finally, over the last few years, we've seen, of course, the extraordinary growth in DSA, an organization with a very different uh, structure and style than uh, the ISO. Um, It's much more loosely organized, plenty of freedom to caucus. Uh, All the disputes are out in the open, pretty much. A looser uh, conception of what socialism is, uh, sometimes perhaps a little vague. What do you make of that? Even some of your ex-members who've now joined uh, the DSA, I've seen embracing uh, engagement with electoral politics, which uh, used to be fairly heretical. So what are your thoughts on, on this um, uh, extraordinary explosion in the in DSA's membership and visibility? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the most important fact. Uh, the two most important facts of the last 24 months are the explosion of DSA's membership from six or 7,000 to I think it's 58,000 now, something like that, um, and the rise of the teacher strikes. And there was a tendency in the ISO to see DSA as, well, it's the old DSA. It's just going to go in the Democratic Party and vote for liberals. And that's that's reducible to that. I think that I will honestly say that the vast majority of people in the ISO believe that DSA is now something very different, that it's a it's a much more radical. It's a new generation of people. And while there while there is a discussion that we have to have about what is the meaning of running campaigns inside the Democratic Party and how will that work? And how do you understand history of co-optation and destruction of the left that the Democrats are very good at doing at the same time as not simply saying, well, since it's happened before, it will inevitably happen again. And therefore, we're going to stay away from it. I think that the DSA's structure is fascinating. It's it's history found uh, history found a channel through which to pour this socialist content. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago or five years ago, um, how likely is it that 
the existing, the then existing organization DSA will become the vehicle for a mass youth radicalization, I would have said it's pretty doubtful. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, there it is. And people are remaking DSA. The question of democratic socialism, I understand to be a little bit different than old school social democracy. So I think there's very interesting questions there. Um, I think what AOC and Rashida Tlaib have done in Congress um, are not the traditional actions of social Democrats who are interested in making peace with the Democratic Party. So there's a lot up in the air. Bernie is going to, he's going to give them a run for their money this year. I think they're going to try everything they can to, to slow him down. And they may well slow him down. I mean, there's going to be 27 or 150 Democratic Party candidates, and they'll try to find a way to stop him. Uh, but even if they stop him, there's going to be tens of thousands of young people who are saying capitalism is the problem, socialism is the answer. And how they understand that, how you get there, uh, what we're really living through in the United States is the debates about strategy and tactics and social forces and organization and all of this stuff is finally coming out of the history books, and a new ge generation is living it. That was Todd Cretion, who spent almost 30 years in the International Socialist Organization, which voted to dissolve itself last week. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of After the Rain from Deserted, a new album for the Mekons. Till next week, bye. Mm -hmm.